When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast, welcome back to another episode, and today, I mean, you asked for it, so we're coming back with yet another installment in the Great Debate series from ESPN to help me wade through some very tall people who used to play basketball, Mr. Andre Snellings. Andre. Yes, sir. How you doing? Thanks for coming back. I'm doing good. I'm 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 excited to be back. The last time I was here, we had fun, so I'm looking forward to it. We did. We thought we would make it even more complicated today. Fifty percent more player to discuss. And the thing you know that I wanted to do, which is a classic debate, it's one of my favorites. It's talked about all the time. Was Hakeem versus David Robinson? But in laying out the great debate series, we have this issue of what to do with other players and who they go with. And I didn't really want to do Russell versus Wilt. And so given the defensive fortitude of these guys, we're going to mix things up and add from the 1960s, Bill Russell. And now we're talking about, you know, arguably the three greatest defensive players in NBA history. So I like how you introduced that. Like, yeah, we were thinking about it. We decided we might just Add in the goat, yeah, you know, no, cause, that's, cause why not, you know? <laughs> where else are you going to talk about him? Mm-hmm. That's true. Especially there's another series on another goat that's been dominating the airwaves. And um, uh, so mm. uh, instead of talking about Jordan, you know, let, let, let's talk about some big men. I don't know what you're speaking of. Is that... <laughs> Rumor has it in my other job that there's something that they, they're they trying to put out there for us to consume. Yes. Are you enjoying that, by the way? Have you been keeping up with it? Oh, yeah, I've been loving it. And it's interesting because I actually was not a big Bulls fan. I was the opposite. I was always pulling for the teams that they were playing against. Um, and so going back and kind of reliving that time period and, and watching it, it's, it's they've done an excellent job with it. I've really been getting into it. So that's a great segue because – the time period we're going back to today, mid-1990s, I think the players we're going to talk about, there's this idea that Michael Jordan lived on an island by himself with no other talented competitors. And nothing to me could be further from the truth or more salient at this time than to discuss the two, arguably the two other great you know, challengers to his throne at that time, Hakeem and David Robinson. And then, of course... We can connect that to Bill Russell because there's a larger GOAT conversation, the championship pedigree and all that kind of stuff. So in, in a way, it's uh, this is a Last Dance-inspired great debate. Oh, you know, <laughs> the Last Dance is inspiring the world right now. So quick um, reminder, if you're new to the series, the concept is big ideas worth discussing about players. We're going to go through some of the key points that I think are really valuable to know about their careers. This includes... Uh, statistical trends, stylistic trends, uh, things happening in the league or on their teams. And we really want to focus on peak play here, the, the best seasons, the heart of the prime kind of stuff versus longevity or other sort of calculations that you could fold into a criteria. 
for me, speaking of criteria, I look at championship equity. How much does a player help teams win championships? That usually applies to how well he plays on mostly good teams. Two principles of comparison that we always try to carry through in the series. One is never judge a player in his worst or best situation. So we'll try to talk about, as we go through these guys, areas where they maybe looked better or looked looked worse. And there is a lot of narrative on the table for us to address today, which is kind of exciting. And then the other principle that we'll kind of carry through is comparing the player to himself. So what that really means here is what changed as someone moved from pre-peak into their peak and then out of their peak? What were the actual things that made them improve as basketball players versus their situation just changing? Yes. When you talk about how situations change, I think these three players are, are kind of built to discuss in that way because David Robinson had so many different kind of epochs to his career. Uh, Akeem Olajuwon kind of did as well. And then Russell was in some ways, the opposite, right? Like his, he had a lot of changes in his career, but the end results stayed so rock steady that it's not always obvious um, when you first look at him. Okay, so with that teaser, where do you want to start? Which one of these guys do you want to dive into first? Maybe it makes sense to start with Russell. I mean, he's he's kind of the the progenitor of uh, of, of of what I consider to be. Not modern NBA basketball, but he he he's the one that, that that brought us into the modern age. Well, the huge thing, and it actually the previous episode we got into this a little bit with J. Kyle Mann from The Ringer, who's talking about the evolution of sort of go-to moves in basketball. And the mm-hmm. thing the thing we got into with Russell was his go-to move wasn't offense; it was the jumping, the vertical unleashing of shot blocking in basketball exactly. in the fifties when it was really frowned upon. And the fact that he did that and sort of revolutionized that is one thing. But like many groundbreaking innovators, he did it for a reason, Andre, which is that he was probably around 6'10 without shoes. He's on record as somewhere around 6'9 and three quarters, but he didn't like to be listed as tall. It was kind of seen as a negative back then because you were so awkward as a societal outlier black guy in the 50s and all the baggage that goes with that and so 610 in shoes that's like 611 or 7 feet today olympic yep. level high jumper and one yep. of the one of the quickest leapers off the floor in nba history yeah that's so a lot of times when i talk to people about russell or i'm doing a uh argument about greatest in history and I bring up Russell and people say, well, you know, the game was so different back then and and, you know, he couldn't do what he did then today. And there's fairness in saying that. But I always end up emphasizing what you just pointed out. Like this is a man that in today's NBA where they measure, quote unquote, with shoes on. I, I still haven't quite got <laughs> the, the, yeah. the meaning behind that. But that's what they do. Um, and the shoes tend to add an inch or two. So, yeah, he would be listed as pretty close to a legit seven footer who was an Olympic caliber high jumper that people look at Sean Kemp. Right. And they're like, wow, that man was 6'10 and he could get off the ground or Dwight Howard when he was winning the dunk contest or Blake Griffin. None of them were approaching Olympic caliber as just as leapers. And then you add to that, you know, I'm a track guy. I I ran track all the way through college, you know, ACC, Big Ten, that was my thing. And I was a high hurdler. That was my event. And there are teammates on record talking about Russell back in the day running the the 
hurdles in 13 seconds. Now it was a, a slightly shorter race back then, but that is hammering. Yeah. That is flying. And so when you've got a big man who's both that explosive vertically and that fast, that quick, I, I don't know that we've seen the like since. So when when that makes me give him the benefit of the doubt in a way that maybe I wouldn't some of the other really older time players because he was such a mega athlete that that would translate to any era, whether his style of play might change or not. You know, I, I, I would believe that he's the type that would change with the time because he was an innovator. He was a great basketball mind. He came up with this concept of jumping. He came up, you know, with this concept of horizontal defense versus vertical for a big man. He, he was he was thinking he was thinking basketball. <laughs> he was thinking the game in a way that, that, that others weren't. So I feel like he would adapt. But just physically, he might be he, he's on the short list of greatest physical specimens in NBA history. Yeah, and one thing he talked about in terms of that mental component was he understood efficiency. And in the analytics landscape and where we are today, there's all this talk about, you know, numbers and nerds and changing things and who wants to look at effective field goal percentage. The dirty secret is that the best minds in the sport have been pushing toward ideas of efficiency for over a half a century. Coaches were talking about it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Doug Collins on telecast used to talk about points per shot, which was sort of how his mind was trying to calculate you know, the number of attempts you have based on how efficient you were. And with Russell, the key insight he had was suppressing your field goal percentage. So in the case of his matchups with Wilt Chamberlain, he realized, hey, if Wilt's taking all these shots and he usually averages 45 a game, and against us he's taking the same number of shots, but he only produces 36 a game, those possessions are going by the wayside, and your team is losing that. For him to have that forward thinking at that point in the history of the league, along with all the other things we just talked about, I do think suggests a kind of sort of innate basketball, you could almost call it a genius, but just something there that lends himself to success in different eras. Exactly, exactly. And the other kind of high-level insight that I've seen him report or I've seen others report about him is that he saw basketball as a 48-minute game where if you subtracted all the, the time taken by every shot, you still have about 45, 46 minutes mm. worth of action. Mm. And so there, there's a quote from him, I believe, in, in one of his books where he mentions that. And he says, essentially, we tend to focus as a society and as analysts on the scoring. And, you know, you mentioned the efficiency, but also just that's what gets people known is putting up big numbers of, of, of scoring points. He's like, but if you subtract every scoring attempt you've still got the lion's share of the game. So what are you doing to contribute during those 45 minutes? Um, be it, as you pointed out, lowering the efficiency of other scorers, be it rebounding, be it moving the ball in ways that, that put your team in better positions to score. Those are the elements that he seemed to feel set him apart as a player versus some of his contemporaries like Wilt, they would have much better numbers during those three minutes of shooting, but wouldn't necessarily be impacting the game as much during the other 45. Okay, so let's put a pin in where, you know, he would be today. We can come back to that later on. The thing that I want to focus on, since we're sort of talking about 
you know, innovation in the 50s and 60s and the evolution of this and all that. For me, the the big thing with Russell that I find so compelling is that he introduces this vertical game, at least puts it under a spotlight. And then the Celtics are very successful. We can talk about this in a little greater detail in a second. But at a high level, the league has rapid changes from the late 50s to the late 60s. I mean, really, really rapid changes, right? We've got racial changes. You've got economic changes. You've got stylistic changes. The shot clock came in in the 50 and 55, and it took a couple years before people realized how they wanted to strategize around that. And then the pace ramps way up. Athleticism ramps up. You've got all these changes. And so what happens at the end of the 1960s when Bill Russell is nearing the end of his career He's 32, 33 years old. Philadelphia wins a championship in 1967. Does his style of play become obsolete? Do the Celtics fade into oblivion as these better <laughs> things come along? What happens? Tell tell everyone what happens. Remind them what happens in 1968 and 1969. As I recall, um, Russell and the Celtics would recover to go ahead and repeat as champions one last time. Um, this time as heavy underdogs because of of Wilt and, and him moving to the Lakers to play with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. And, and the thought was, yes, that the game was moving on from the Celtics' dominance. And no, you know, he either he evolved his style or his style was still successful enough um, to, to bring in two more championships before he retired. Right. And, and just to be clear, the league was larger then. You didn't have eight or nine teams anymore. You had 15 or 16 or something by the time he went out. You also had, so you had an extra round of playoffs, and then you had these three kind of super teams. You had the 68 Philadelphia team coming off the 1967 championship season. You had the 69 Lakers, which I consider the first sort of assembled super team in NBA history with Wilt going to join Baylor and West, as you mentioned. And there's one more team in there that has to be mentioned that the Celtics beat in the round before, which is the Knicks. The Knicks, mm -hmm. who won two championships in 1970 and 1973, they transformed when they made that trade for Dave DeBusher, and they just had great balance yeah. on offense and defense. You had DeBusher, you had Walt Frazier, you had Willis Reed, and the Celtics took them out in the round before as well. And if you're new to Russell and you're wondering why we're sort of fawning over that component, I actually think one of the big things to understand, Andre, with Russell is that he is the person, you know, we talk about perception and narratives. He is the person who provided the sort of ability for all these teammates to be in the Hall of Fame versus oh, yeah. the Hall of Fame teammates carrying him, which is very often the argument, right? He played with all these Hall of Fame teammates. Definitely, definitely. So I will say on Russell, um, he's one, and I think the last time I was on here, I talked about the 10-step test. And yes, how, I was going to bring know, that back up. Look. Yeah, well... When we first started, you know, you and I have been on some some projects that have looked back through NBA history. And the very first of those projects that I ever did, I went into it believing that I was going to come out of it feeling that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the GOAT. Um, and I, I went into it believing that I was going to feel that um, Will Chamberlain was underrated yes. versus Russell. Yes. That, I had. We've never talked about this. I had the exact same preconception. Yeah, you know, I mean, because I in my mind, I thought that Chamberlain was like a 1960s version of Kevin Garnett. Right. That, you know, he was just out there. He didn't have any help. Yeah. And this guy, Russell, was Tim Duncan. He was on these stacked teams and that he was getting credit 
for success that was coming from his teammates. And the more we researched, the more we went back. I mean, we went back to the level of, of news articles from the the the, the 60s and and just the, the work that you did where you pointed out the 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 team defensive rating versus team offensive rating. Right. And the step function when Russell joined the team <laughs> and then the massive peak when he was at his peak and then the step function down when he retired. You know, just just elements like that really brought home to me that, no, Russell Russell was the difference. He was what made those teams in Boston work. And without him, they just didn't appear to be a special team in any way that it was it was pretty much all him. And that completely changes the narrative. Um, I like the way you put it is like that that he's the one that was generating Hall of Fame teammates, not the other way around. So there's there's two distinct periods for the Celtics and for Russell. And I think, I don't know if we haven't ever discussed this. Do you agree that his best years were probably in that like 1962 to 1965 range? Definitely. I, right. That's like what, 27 to 31 ish per age. And yeah. Okay. So if, if we look at that before that period, you've got the early kind of Celtics I really want to call them the white Celtics because they just had, <laughs> man. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's accurate. It was crazy. Um, but then later on, you know, you had other notable players who played larger roles toward the end of the decade. The staples were guys like Sam Jones and John Havlicek. And then you mm-hmm. had other, you know, you had other players, defensive guys, Casey Jones, Tom Satch, Satch Sanders was another sort of defensive specialist. You could get a Bailey Howell who came in, I think, in 68. Um, and, you know, he was a scorer and kind of like an all-star level scorer a couple right. seasons before that. So you, you have these like distinct periods. But if you look at the heart of that thing from 1962 to 1965, almost mm-hmm. in between this, after Bill Sharman leaves, after yeah. Frank Ramsey goes away, after Bob Cousy. I mean, Bob Cousy kind of starts to decline 1960, 1961. He hangs on for a couple years. And all the newspaper articles at the time are saying, this is going to be it for the Celtics. They're old and washed up. Exactly. And, and statistically, their most dominant years are from 1962 to 1965. And that dominance is squ- you know, pretty squarely defensive dominance. In the regular season, we're talking about like six, seven, eight points ahead of league average in defense mm-hmm. by my latest estimates that I've continued to revise over the years. And then uh, in the playoffs, you're still a playoff dominant team plus, you know, five, six points better than your opponents on defense and you have a passable offense and they're just lapping the field. They're like a 60 win team when the next best team is a 45 win team or something. Yeah. I mean, when you consider, because again, I think because it was long ago, there's this perception, oh, well, it was a different league, but this team won 11 championships in 13 seasons. Like you have to be so much better than your competition, that even if things go wrong, even if the competition is at their best, even like no matter what, the Celtics were in the finals. And, you know, we talked about the last dance and part of the reason that Jordan is so revered, in addition to, you know, the marketing and the 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 just beautiful exploits of, of things he did individually on the court. The reason he's revered is that the Bulls won every year that he played a full season from 90 to, to 98. And, and that's considered, that's just amazing. Six championships 
in six full seasons, you know, not including that partial where he came back at the end. Well, the Russell Celtics did it 11 times in 13 years. One of the two times they lost, he was, you know, presumably or, or, or reportedly playing injured and, and, and they still barely lost. And, and it's just the, the, the amount of. The, the amount of quality for that team, especially if we can tie it directly to him, that is a testament that, you know, is, is just very hard to repeat in NBA history. Not just, oh, he's got 11 rings. It's that he was contributing so massively to those 11 rings that there wasn't really anybody else or any other team in the NBA that you could assemble that could really challenge them. Even if you put the next two or three best players in the league on one team, like the Lakers did uh, at the end, it was still the Celtics. So there are a couple of key reasons statistically why we have good cause to think Russell was such a driving force here. One is, especially when you start to look at the second half of that decade, again, where the game is becoming more modern, more athleticism, more money, more racial diversity, more skill. The Celtics are still dominating. And the way they're built is Russell plays 45 minutes a game in the pivot, and mm-hmm. they start they platoon the rest of the roster around him. All these other guys play you know, 25 to 32 minutes a game. They go 6-7 deep. They run this fast break. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's their sort of ticket. And so you have good reason to think, hey, if we keep changing these parts in and out, you know, the guy who stays, and statistically we can also look at that, the, uh, the sort of long-term regression analysis that I've done before where, right. you, where you try to estimate who's, you know, when someone goes out of the lineup and goes in the lineup, again, it all points back to Russell. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly what his value is, and we'll get back to that before the end of this episode, but this is the evidence and the thinking behind why this guy was actually, I mean, when we started that project years ago, I was like, Russell's got to be overrated because of all these championships. Exactly. And I almost hall of fame teammates won for him. Right. And I I almost think now it's become the opposite, which is that he gets the, you know, played against plumbers reputation combined with the idea that he played with all these, Hall of Fame championships and he really only ever had like two or three other all-star guys on his team at the time which was the same everyone else had yeah I mean so that's you know a couple of uh, things I wanted to to inject really quick one you've been doing a good job of kind of pointing out how the league was changing during Russell's um, career and one way that I kind of think about it is that he was essentially the bridge from George Mikan to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yeah like I don't know that I don't think that he played with with either of them, but Mikan's career ended, Russell came in, and then right when his career ended, the next season was Kareem's rookie season. And so, and Kareem most definitely spans up into Showtime and the modern era, and he played against Jordan. And so, played, I, I feel he played like... against Akeem. Yeah, he played against Akeem. Um, did he play? He missed David Robinson by like a year because David had the, the, yep. the military obligation. But... You know, when when I when we started off and I said that Russell was kind of the bridge to the modern NBA, that's kind of what I have in mind, because by the time he finished, the NBA was starting to look a lot more um, like what we consider to be the modern product. And so that that's kind of one element. Another that, that you pointed out um, with the teammates, it was interesting to go back and look at when they were elected to the Hall of Fame. Right. Because Hall of Famers, you're eligible five years after you, you retire. But he only had a couple of teammates that were 
first or second ballot Hall of Famers. Mm -hmm. Most of his Hall of Fame teammates got in 10, 15, 20 years later, almost like a like someone looked back and said, wait a minute, this guy has eight championship rings. Clearly, he needs to be on a champion. You know, he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. And it, it kind of when I saw that, that also kind of reiterated to me that like, yeah, these guys were getting in specifically because of their championship hardware, not the championship hardware generated because they were Hall of Fame players. Some quick stats on Bill Russell. Okay. Because he got better in the playoffs. His offense, he was never a huge offensive guy, uh, but he got better in the playoffs offensively, especially at this point in time. Really good rim runner, really good offensive rebounder. You talked about that track speed. He was phenomenal in transition. So mm -hmm. he would outrun, you know, you want to think about today we have like grab and go guys, right? Rus yeah. Russell would grab, outlet, into the Celtics fast break, and then in the blur, he'd be down the court. This is how he got his best offense, in my opinion, not from trying to post up or anything like that. You you on board with that from the clips you've seen? And Definitely. Uh, yeah. Okay. So scoring in the playoffs, if you use the inflation-adjusted method that I've talked about before, stand, sort of normalizing the numbers to today's game, you're talking about about 15 to 16 point per 75 playoff score. That's up a couple points from the regular season. Plus three to five efficiency is often talked about as a low efficiency score. And he was kind of around average or below average in the regular season. But in the playoffs in these best years, 1962 to 1964, he upped that. To me, that's just a product of peak athleticism, experience in the game. He knows what he's getting into. He's getting those rebounds. He's getting out on the break. And his passing starts to come along, right? Later mm -hmm. in his career, he would be a high post hub. But I think this is the best blend of Russell in terms of athleticism, scoring, playing to his strengths, passing, and of course, the overall defensive chops that we've been discussing. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think that kind of plays to what we mentioned earlier as far as the um, uh, the way he approached the game. You know, he he did up his scoring a bit, you know, as you said, 16, 17 points per 75 is not, I think, how people think of him. People think of him almost like he was Ben Wallace, like he was just out there just yeah. playing defense, where he was actually an effective scorer. He could be a go-to scorer under pressure, not because he was going to ISO, but because he knew where his strengths were and he was able to execute them even in the playoffs. Um, but you mentioned his ability to uh, pass the ball and later even become a bit of a passing hub. You know, there were years where he was among the league leaders and assists overall, not just, you know, as a big man. The the fact that, that he paid attention to and played these other elements of the game at a high level, even if he wasn't putting up the video game numbers, I think is something else that, that often gets overlooked. Let's transition to one of the modern guys now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we've been talking about perception of teams. I think the opposite is true with Hakeem Olajuwon. Hakeem Olajuwon, to me, and I want to start with this sort of idea of his circumstance and how it changed his perceptions. He is almost like the Kevin Garnett of the 80s. When you look at the state of the Houston Rockets franchise and every, mm -hmm. everything that happened with that team between injuries to key players like Ralph Sampson where they had the Twin Towers to drug problems that the players had, to sort of management and coaching snafu, snafus in terms of constructing the roster and organizing the talent on the team in a way that made sense. I, I, I thought that you were going to segue from Russell 
contributing, uh, being a, a rim runner type, um, but he being able to have success with it in the playoffs to Robinson and whether he was able to do the same. Mm. And then I thought coming in that the analogy would be Robinson to Garnett as opposed to Olajuwon to Garnett. So that was, you, you just hit me with two curveballs that, that were both really, really cool. Um, yeah, so those 80s Rockets, they did have a lot of tragedy, and uh, or basketball tragedy, uh, I should say. Um, and early on in this conversation, when we were talking about Jordan, you alluded to how um, there were, he was still facing all history level players, that the, the narrative that he was out there by himself uh, isn't necessarily true. But I will say that those Rockets had the chance to build into what should have been his best rivals when he was reaching his peak, you know, after Magic and Bird were declining and, and before uh, the, the, the next generation, the post-Jordan generation came in. The, the team that should have been his foil was the Rockets because Ralph Sampson was the monster before Jordan in college. He was the number one overall pick. He was the rookie of the year. And so then you add Akeem Olajuwon to that. Those were two guys that you would have thought could have been the foundation when they made they, they made that surprise final in 86, uh, upsetting the Lakers. That should have been the the start of a beautiful friendship, right? That by the time you hit the nineties, they they should have been the perennial power out west. But uh, you know, Samson had his injuries and his career was cut short. And then, as you point out, just kind of the 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 cocaine cowboy days of the eighties, and, and the Rockets were hit hard by that. Um, yeah, a lot of times Elijahwan was out there that, with teams and support that weren't nearly as strong as they should have been. Uh, based on having a, a generational talent like him. I think they needed to upgrade the talent anyway, because even if you had Samson there, to me, and we can get into this now if you want, Hakeem, mm-hmm. you want some kind of counterbalance on the perimeter. So that either means you're playing with another wing, that Kobe Shaq model, where you have another right. wing who can do something to kind of help with the heavy offensive lifting, or you can play four out. Right, and they had neither, and and so you had the roster kind of decimated. You know, the guys they had, you probably want to upgrade anyway. Lewis Lloyd, Mitchell Wiggins, John Lucas, but those are mm-hmm. the very guys who went away kind of overnight due to these suspensions and these drug issues. And so, from a general management standpoint, if we think about what we're seeing with the Last Dance, Jerry Krause played every card perfectly in Chicago. And he said, mm-hmm. he said, we need a defense and we need a second guy and we need role players. And I'm going to put these pieces in place over the years. I'm going to make trades and I'm going to draft. The Rockets did the opposite. They didn't really draft anyone who was successful at home. They didn't replace any of these parts. And the coaching situation, I mean, don't get me started on Don Chaney winning coach of the year just because Akeem was so good in 1990. Yeah, I mean, it's another example of what we were just talking about with Russell, right? The, the the player being so great that he's able to carry along, be it teammates or coaches, and the accolades they otherwise would maybe wouldn't have had. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, I was watching a Spurs game in preparation for this little David Robinson 1994 action, who we'll get to in a second, and they're playing Detroit. And in the first six minutes of this game, I have never seen more defensive breakdowns more confusion, more lackluster <laughs> offense, more ball hoggery and nonsense. And I and I said to myself, for some reason, I got them confused with the, the team the year before. 
and or maybe it was 93 it was Isaiah's last year whatever year that was and okay right in so in my head I'm thinking wait this is like a 40 win team they look like a 15 win team what's going on and I pull it up on basketball reference and indeed they were a 20 win team that year the game I was watching and who's mm-hmm. coaching the team Andre <laughs> the illustrious Donald Cheney oh my goodness so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I just I, I I just really think one of the biggest things to understand about Olajuwon, especially that period before the peak, 1986 to 1992, is just the discombobulation of that team in Houston. Yeah, you know, Olajuwon is fascinating, especially, well, I guess he and Robinson both, they came along the generation before the data ball era um, re- really ramped up, but... Um, I remember one time I made a serious effort at trying to gauge the difference between those 80s Rockets and those mid 90s Rockets that were, you know, that were 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 championship caliber and the difference between Olajuwon's play himself. It was like, okay, you know, noting that the team itself had his issues was was Olajuwon at the same level then that he was at his peak but the team just wasn't good enough to show it? Or was it that Olajuwon himself also got better during those mid-90s? And to the extent that I could get any any kind of a, a analytic, I, I don't know how granular it was. You know, um, I was using some of your Wowie stuff, uh, looking at, at, at seasons that, that Olajuwon missed some time in 86 and then 91 and 92 versus when he missed time in 95 and 96. And it really seems like it was a combination, right? That, that yes, the team wasn't good enough then uh, compared to how it got later, but that Elijah Wan himself was playing at a much more impactful level uh, when he was at his peak than he was when he was younger. And I wonder if, if your analysis speaks to that uh, in a similar way or if you would uh, disagree and, and, and you know, suggest that maybe Akeem was always there and his team just let him down. Yeah, that's a great point. So just to be clear, you've mentioned it a couple times. Wowie is this with or without concept where you can look at a player when he's out of the lineup, assuming that his teammates don't change. And I think the challenge for Hakeem, like many players, is there just isn't enough of a sample size. He didn't miss enough games or consistently over enough years to get a great feed on that. But I do think there's a lot of box score kind of data evidence and stylistic film-driven evidence that as the Rockets changed, there were a couple key changes in him. So the one for me that actually moves him into his peak is he expands his passing. This post-passing, and he talks about it in interviews before the 1993 season, 1992-93 season, he says, okay, I'm going to trust my teammates more. He says this. Mm -hmm. He says, I've had a problem with this, and I'm going to expand that. And you've got the passing. That gives you more playmaking. You also have Rudy Tomjanovich coming in. You get more four out. You get, you know, you're starting to get stretch forwards and things like that. And so I think it's a combination of those things happening at the same time. And there was a lot of off-court stuff going on with Hakeem and the Rockets management and contract situations in 1991 and 1992. And that was back in a day when those things could have a very souring effect and mm-hmm. I, think, I think whatever, because he was incredible in 1990, and I think whatever growth, we've seen this in so many players, whatever growth 
all that experience provided in his life on the court and off the court. When he came back in 1993, not just passing improving for him, in my opinion, but all of the scoring stuff started to click. And the decision, you know, everything was quick and crisper and his shot was better. And so I do think you get a little bit of a bump in his scoring game as well. But it goes hand in hand with having the right pieces around him and having better offensive systems. I mean, some of the stuff they were running, if you can find these old Rockets games from the early 90s, late 80s, like what? What is going on? What are you, What are you doing? Yeah. So, so a couple of uh, uh, things I, w- I would like to inject there. Um, one is a personal anecdote. So I have to emphasize: I do not have a source for this quote, so I can't quote Moses Malone directly. So you know, Akeem went to college in at Houston, and at the time, Moses Malone was the dominant player in the NBA, and he was based in Houston, and they would work out together, and you know, it was kind of a famous relationship, and. My dad would always say that he saw an interview with Moses Malone where Mo said, you know what? The boy only know two words, my ball and women's. <laughs> and and so the, the you know, my dad would be, you know, laughing about it because it was just such a, a, a funny dichotomy, especially with the way that, you know, Akeem Olajuwon, when you hear him speak, he speaks like a prince. So, you know, for, for that to be the description of his vocabulary was always funny. But more so than that, was the idea that Olajuwon came into the NBA with the thought that if you get me the ball, I'm scoring. This right. is this is how I play the game. And so, yeah, I agree. Okay, so this is my big question about Hakeem. It is my biggest question about him. I, I believe I referenced this exact point in his backpicks profile. The fact that he never played on a great regular season team, you know, these teams that we're talking about 1993, 1994, two best regular season teams, you know, 50 something wins, uh, plus three to plus four kind of net rating in the playoffs, by the way, they were better that 93 to 95 three year run where they play whatever it is. They play like 50 something playoff games when you account for strength of schedule in the opponent. I believe off the top of my head, they're. SRS or adjusted point differential is like plus seven, plus seven and a half. And it's just a testament to how difficult they were to beat. And I've called it, you know, Hakeem's resilience, the stickiness of his defense and offense, regardless of competition. So my big question, Mm -hmm. can he adapt and play slightly differently on a better team? You know, one of the weaknesses in his game is sometimes he takes crazy shots because like all the great, he's one of the great shot makers Ever. He's not discussed. We hear about Kobe. Sometimes we hear about Michael. Hakeem made some of the craziest shots you will ever see, period, mm-hmm. full stop. He started doing this in the 80s. Yep. But sometimes he would take some bad ones, and some, and he would want all of that action. He just constantly wanted to repost. So my big concern with him, can he play a little bit more team-friendly if he's got better talent or if he's got a 1B, 1A kind of offensive guy next to him. What what do you think? So my suspicion is the answer is no. And the reason that I believe that is that for all that we've talked about, um, as far as his, his team and coaching situations, we got to see him at different parts of his career playing with really good talent. It might not have always been at their peak, but at the start of his career, we got to see him playing with Ralph Sampson. And you talked a little bit about how that model that, you know, they, they, that was the first time I ever heard the term twin towers, right? So that twin towers model, what isn't one that we've seen historically have a lot of um, championship level success. 
But I would counter that in some ways we just haven't seen very many instances of multiple big men that good, that versatile playing together. And that, you know, once we get to David Robinson, Robinson and Duncan was another example of that a generation later that we did see some some championship level success out of. But I don't want to get too far off, off point. My point was when when they were playing together before uh, uh, Samson got hurt, Elijah Wan was still playing that style of, okay, I'm the first option. You get me to rock and, and I'm going to score. And then at the end of, of Elijah Wan's peak, we got to see Drexler come in. We got to see Barkley come in. We got to see Pippen come in. And they were all past their peaks at that point. But at the, by the same token, they didn't seem live action like they were so far past their peaks. You know, we're talking 96, 97, 98-ish time windows. And, you know, their contemporaries, they, they, these are all guys that were drafted in the same time window as Jordan, as Carl Malone, who were competing for those championships. And so I remember at the time thinking, wow, these Rockets have a chance to be one of those super teams. And they could be, you know, we saw Jordan's three-peat, and then we saw him leave, and we saw the Rockets' three-peat. I thought that was going to be the chance to to settle it for all the marbles. Like, Elijah Wan's got his uh, star perimeter players now to 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 go up against against Michael and, 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 and Scotty and the Bulls. And we didn't get to see it because the teams weren't as good as I feel like they should have been. And some of that, you know, I can attribute to age and injury or just slowing down. But I feel like if Elijah Wan were able to modify his game the way you've described um, and still be that alpha maximum presence when surrounded by a little more talent, that we would have seen some of that play out. I think that's a great point because the sort of style or chemistry on that team, even though they were older, didn't really have much change from Hakeem. Uh, I will say, in fairness, Matt Maloney is not exactly the um, <laughs> shining pinnacle of perimeter stars that you want to play with. But yeah, that's that's an interesting piece of evidence. I am also skeptical that he could have done it. I do think he had the skills to do it. I do think uh, Houston would actually run like pin downs for him and he could come up to the elbow and catch and shoot off of curls. Michael Jordan right. once fa- Mike, Michael Jordan once famously said, he's not a center, he's a 7-foot guard, and he mm-hmm. very much played that way watching guards, mimicking them, face up, footwork emphasis and just oh, his footwork was absurd. Yeah, but I love the speed of his game and I think the fact that he was a skilled mid-range shooter um, really underrated athlete, kind of offensive rebounder, crash, rim run, all that stuff, and the quickness of his decisions. All of those things lend themselves to playing with high-level level talent and having some off-ball value, but mm-hmm. I don't know if he had the mentality for it. It is it is a very big question for me when we say, like, you know, what are my biggest concerns about these guys at their best? That's probably it for Akeem, being able to scale and gel basically with better teammates. Yeah, and I mean, and it's a criticism. Or it, that almost feels like too strong a word because we're we're kind of nitpicking at the goat level. Generally speaking, the big men dominate on defense, and perimeter players dominate on offense. Akeem had the ability to do both, but if he's dominating like that on offense, that might not leave enough opportunity for his perimeter players to also be able to be maximized yeah, unless yeah. they're playing five out as shooters. Yeah. And even then, I mean, he's just not going to have the playmaking of an elite, you know, perimeter 
player who scores at that level typically. Uh, right. if, if you're a perimeter player and you can dial up your playmaking like that, that historically has been what gives you a leg up on these big men, I would say going back to the days of Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. Let's fold in Russell now. We've alluded to him many times, and you know we're only like an hour in, so we might as well bring the the third guy in our love triangle here. Because, oh, yeah. because I don't know if it matters. You, you said fold in Russell. Yeah, you meant Robinson. I definitely meant David Robinson. Thank you. This is uh, nice to have someone correct me instead of realizing later in my solo podcast that I'm saying the wrong <laughs> words. Yes, let's fold in David Robinson. And Robinson, unlike Hakeem, had pretty good regular season team results, despite also not having great rosters around him. There was a huge difference, of course. The Spurs were a much more stable franchise with much more promising coaching situations, and they their personnel that they were able to bring in, trade, or draft. I mean, they had talented players, you know. Robinson started his career, never played with great point guards, which I think is an issue, but it, mm-hmm. you know, at least he started his career with like Rod Strickland, right? Yeah. Uh, then the mid-90s, Avery Johnson, Vinny Del Negro kind of combination that like, did it uh, evolve enough to become a decent passing hub that interchanged with Robinson? Eh, maybe a little bit, but I always thought he would do much better playing with really great perimeter talent and Sean Elliott's probably the only at least on offense the only sort of notable perimeter piece from these best years yeah no I would agree with that and 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 Robinson all three of these players are so interesting and so unique Robinson I always he he was introduced to me during his tournament run and was 87 with the Naval Academy and he was so electric as a player. You know, that that year, I, and I don't know, I'm aging myself. I don't know if you were watching live action uh, at that time. But in college, Danny Manning was just the, the, the greatest college basketball player in the world for, for a couple seasons. He was just supposed to, you know, everything was going to be, he, how, it, how would it relate to him? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Navy starts winning in the tournament. And, and I start watching them and... You know, David Robinson is just I mean, I'm just looking at this guy like he's way the best player that I've seen this year, you know. And and so yeah. I remember being so excited and, and disappointed. Well, you know, he had to serve his, his, his naval obligations for a couple of years. So we didn't get to see him in the league for until maybe 1990, like two or three years later. But I remember being so excited about watching him play at the NBA level. And he stepped on the court and it was the same thing. You know, he was seven one. He was super athletic. He was fast. He was strong. You know, just the way that he played. You talked earlier about Russell with his rim running and his ability to just finish at the rim in this electric way. Um, all of that was there in, Robin, in, in Robinson. And it was just it, it just felt like this guy is c- can be the next best thing. And and he came in and he put up those huge numbers as a rookie and he got into the MVP debate right away, even though this was right, you know, before Jordan retired and, and it was Jordan and Barkley were kind of taking turns on getting the MVPs. Robinson would be second in, in the MVP vote a lot of those years. And so just the way his career began to you know, bring it back to your point, I, I, I hate that we didn't get to see him in either either with a more you know, established uh, floor general point guard type or in maybe more of an innovative system, you know, like the five out that the the, the Rockets ran. Um, 
where where we could really get to see him be his best version of himself with a team that was also its best version of itself at the same time. We never really got to see that. And, you know, when when um, we've got some plus minus numbers from the mid 90s, you know, 94, 95, 96. And Robinson was number one in the league in on off plus minus all three of those years, often by like a lot. Like, yeah. you know, um, Elijah Wan was strong, too, but he was clearly uh, a step or two behind in that particular measure. You know, what's interesting about what you just said? I don't think Robinson could play five out, four out the way Hakeem could. And I want to get back to some of the other stuff. We'll circle back to the playoffs and certainly just to close the loop, all these teams we're talking about with San Antonio, they're more like 50, 55, pushing 60 win teams. In 1995, when he wins the MVP, that's a plus six point differential. The same sort of level of success is achieved in 1996 plus six point differential of course it's completely overshadowed by what happened in the playoffs with Hakeem and then the Bulls 72 win season in 96 but before we get to the playoffs you do you think he could play sort of a four out see the key thing for me is that wasn't even how his post game worked he liked to turn and face versus have back mm-hmm. to the basket kick out so what do you think I really don't think he could do it I think it would have been different than the way that Akeem did it for the reasons that you suggested, that Akeem was much more of a, I'm in my office, got my back to the the basket, and while I'm holding the ball, um, I'm facing the perimeter players, at least on the strong side, and maybe I know what's going on on the weak side, so if I make a quick decision, then the other four can play off me. I don't know that Robinson would have done it that way, but I do feel like he was – dominant enough at what he did that opposing teams felt the need to double him. You know, again, not not shying too much into the playoffs, but I felt like the Rockets did a lot more doubling on Robinson than the Spurs did on Elijah Wan in that series. And that that was part, not the whole, because Elijah Wan was alien that year. But, you know, I felt that that was part of, of, the difference in their statistical output. And so if you're still able to collapse opposing defenses to some extent, um, I think you can have some success with four perimeter players that are either spot up shooters or that are able to attack uh, a little, uh, you know, attack off of of imbalances that you create. So I think what we're getting at is five out because Robinson he did not operate as low in the post as Akeem either. Akeem could be mid-post or low-post, but I think a lot of the success you're alluding to, and I'm assuming we're aligned, we've talked about him enough in terms of the stylistic things. He's a turn-and-face guy, he's got a little pull-up jumper, but his key in terms of his post-up game and scoring was the strength-quickness combination, that first step, that rip-through, right? right? His free-throw rate is actually something that stands out. When he came into the league uh, at 24-ish or so after the naval duty, he was already up there, 11, 12, 13 free-throws per 100. But when we get into these peak periods, 1994 to 1996, part of the thing that ramps up is the aggression. He's moved a little bit more up into the elbow areas on offense where he can pass it more high-post kind of passing hub as offensive rebound numbers go down because of this and there's just an uptick in the aggression and he's taking I couldn't believe it when I looked it up because I'd actually forgotten he's at 14 to 15 free throws per 100 possessions 
Yes. That's like yes. very, very close to all time level territory. Yes, uh, I, I agree. Um, he he was drawing free throws at a much higher rate than than Elijahwan was. Even mm-hmm. though Elijahwan is the one that we think of is is being the one to attack more on offense. Right. Um, so so that so it, that's almost just to be clear, right? That's almost like a five out. That's almost more like the Giannis model right now, where you provide space for that action and then the the specific kickout routes to shooters versus. With Houston and Shaq and other you know teams have done this before. You're putting your key scorer close to the hoop, and you're having like a spoken wheel around him. Yeah, yeah, that that's an excellent uh, separation, and it's also, I would say, it it plays off of what you spoke of with Elijahwan and his potential strength versus weakness. Like his strength allowed the method that they used to work and lead the two championships. But we talked about kind of scalability. I kind of feel like Drexler, for example, a, a player that can create with the ball and go to the rim and do his thing, might have been more maximized playing next to Robinson than he was playing next to Akeem. Hmm. Yeah, I, I could buy that, at least in theory. That's interesting. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about these playoffs, specifically playoffs. Um, playoffs? <laughs> specifically between Hakeem and... Elijah, I mean, uh, and Robinson, we talked about Russell earlier and how during his best years, there's a little more offensive oomph in the playoffs here with Akeem, the same kind of story that we've seen in other players that have that shot making his numbers go up in the postseason in these series. If you look at like 1993 to 1995, we're talking about a really all time level score, 30 points per 75 kind of guy plus three plus four plus five percent efficiency so there's still some efficiency there but of course robinson it goes in the other direction robinson robinson has all this sexy regular season stuff happening and it goes down and i mean for me that's always been a function of the way he got his points he isn't as comfortable having the versatility of the post moves he's just he's got the little face up and he's got his quickness and his rip through and his power to get to the line. But for instance, when they played Utah, Utah would put Carl Malone on him. Yep. And Carl Malone was that smaller, body. right? But he was quick as all heck with his feet and he was strong. And that took enough, chipped enough away from Robinson that it was really hard for him to kind of have really successful go to scoring in those situations. Yeah. So, you know, we referenced a few times some of these projects that we worked on. And that was one of the revelations for me with Robinson was that his postseason, what what people think about his postseason struggles weren't limited to that one series against a team in the Rockets. Because honestly, he he produced well himself in that series. He did. A team was just on another level. But um, it was those surrounding years, you know, 94 and 96, where Carl Malone seemed to just be able to take Robinson completely out of his game. And and then, when, you know, when we went even further and looked at other seasons, it, it was a fairly regular thing that, that Robinson might put up some blistering numbers against the perimeter fast-paced team like Golden State. But any time he was in kind of these competitive uh, matchups against teams that, that seemed to have smart defensive strategies, he wasn't able to produce anymore at nearly the level that Elijahwan was a much better initiator of his own scoring offense. And that when he had that kind of uh, team around him that 
forced, you know, because of the threat of three point shot at a, at a good efficiency, forced opponents to not be able to double him as much. I talked about how Robinson wasn't double getting help as much with Elijah Wan, that a team could eat that up, that you could build a team around that, especially in the, those 90s periods where there weren't necessarily a lot of super teams. And he could by himself almost uh, generate enough offense for, for championship postseason caliber basketball. Whereas Robinson either is because, as you pointed to, he wasn't the way he scored wasn't conducive to that. Or maybe it was this is where his teammates and, and, and the style that they used didn't allow him to be maximized. But for whatever reason, he could not do that at that level. And for the teams he was on in the mid-90s, that was a definite weakness compared to Olajuwon. I think summarizing that for me, the difference is, Hakeem, my concern is how he scales up to better teams next to other elite offensive talent. But he's clearly a number one postseason kind of offensive hub, post-scorer guy. Whereas with Robinson, I think he would have been much better off as a number two, possibly a, a 1B, when you think about offensive load and responsibility. And I think in a weird way, this cuts in both directions, the perception of his numbers. When people look at his numbers, especially his regular season numbers, or they're not familiar with them and they go back on basketball reference and they see these obscene numbers. 29 points per game, all the rebounds, the blocks. You know, he had the 70-point game at the end of the season to win the scoring title in 94, all these mm-hmm. things. They they start to think, well, wait a second. David Robinson, he got chewed up by Akeem. He wasn't on Jordan's level. So th- this guy must be the greatest paper tiger in history. And instead, I think that's just one of these classic circumstance situations where he was asked to almost go beyond his capacity. And when it was put in the crucible of the playoffs, it kind of reduced down to what it was. I mean, I have the numbers here. Statistically, his scoring goes from, in the regular season, 28 to 30 points per 75 on plus 5 to 6% efficiency. So that sounds almost exactly like what Akeem was putting up in the playoffs. And it and it flips at his peak here in these years, 1994, 1995, 96, when we look at the multiple season aggregation over three years, over multiple series, all of a sudden you're talking about 23, 24 points per 75. The efficiency goes down to like zero, you know, league mm-hmm. a- the, the league average or whatever. It's a huge shift, and I think that's reflective of asking this player to take on too much in that situation. And Robinson, to me, I said it at the top, I think he just would have been way better as a pick-and-pop, pick-and-roll rim runner, offensive rebound. He was a great offensive rebounder because of the athleticism, as was Akeem. And getting all that, trimming all that fat, very similar to Russell, right? Where where Russell, he wasn't really a good post player in the offense, but he would throw one in every once in a while. But imagine if Russell played that way, but tried to take 18 post-ups a game instead of three or something. Right, and it's an extreme example, but that's where I'm going with Robinson. I think on offense, he's better suited as a complementary pick and pop, pick and roll kind of guy. Yeah, you know, is so there's a, a a definite connotation that being the number one is better or more positive than being a, a great number two. And with these particular three, I I think we have some latitude to try to tease out. Is that universally true 
or is that situationally true? We talked about how Akeem with other talent wasn't necessarily maximized even in his, you know, late prime window before he really faded out. You know, we're not talking Raptors days here. Um, And Robinson in his late prime got to go into that role that you were describing where he was maybe more secondary on offense uh, behind Tim Duncan and Robinson thrived in that. Killed it. Right. I mean, he killed it. And so we talked about how we have regular season plus minus numbers from the mid nineties. Well, we have playoff postseason numbers uh, postseason plus minus numbers for the late 90s and, and up to the current day. And during those teams that were considered to be Duncan's teams, you know, like that those late that late 90s run where they won the 99 championship, it was considered to be Duncan's teams. Robinson's playoff plus minus numbers were absurd. They were like cartoonish. They were what Duncan's were during that 01 to 03 run when 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 Robinson was fading out. And so it, I'm saying all this to say that situationally, Elijah Wan showed that he could be what we consider the number one and lead his team to the promised land. But we have questions as to whether he would have been able to fit perfectly onto better teams, whereas Robinson was the opposite. Is there more benefit or more equality between those two situations, how important is it to be able to scale up? And then if, you know, just finishing, if you bring Russell into the equation, obviously he was at a different era, but you could argue as, as you were kind of alluding to that he was kind of a Megatron version of what you believe to be the best role for Robinson. And he was so far better than the rest of the players in his era, which includes some all history players that, you know, he was the lion's share reason for a dynasty the likes we've never seen. I think the idea of a great number one, excuse me, a great number two being better than an okay number one is pretty clearly vetted. And I mean, you you wouldn't want an okay number one who then would be an only okay number two. It's because your right. okay number one is just not really going to get you very far ever. And then what you need to get far is you need good number twos and good number threes. So that's where scaling comes in. Robinson, to me was and we can segue this into scaling and then finish with time machining them into today i think robinson was a significantly better offensive player than russell in this same kind of mold that we're talking about the the stats that stand out to me here regarding this issue 1998 1999 2000 in san antonio robinson's playoff scoring numbers are the same or slightly better than the ones i just cited off from 1994 to 1996, mm-hmm. right? So you're still talking about 22, 23 points per 75, but the efficiency is plus one, plus 2%. You could call that noise or whatever, but I think the huge takeaway here is you've got a guy four or five years later, post-injury, clearly playing a diminished offensive role next to better teams, Tim Duncan, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in that role, he's still generating similar production because that's probably a role more suited for his offensive style one more thing I want to add in there is I do think Robinson's passing edge against peak Akeem is a little overstated Uh, even if you get into the regular season first playoff numbers there the passing sort of signal isn't quite as strong as it is in the regular season and I think that's because Robinson was good and much better than Olajuwon at high post elbow kind of face and turn 
and hit cutters and make those kinds of passes. But he wasn't a great natural passer. It wasn't like if you put him in pick and pop situations or the short roll that he's going to suddenly look like Draymond Green or right. something like that. And so I, I do think that we often think of Robinson as having a passing advantage there, but that wasn't really necessary. This necessarily the offensive value that he's bringing in this kind of secondary role that we've been discussing. I think that's true if we, you know, limit this to peak Olajuwon. And we've been talking a lot about peaks. Yes, correct. I do think it was a bigger difference from early Olajuwon. Agree. And that that was, that, that that was, as we talked about, what boosted peak Olajuwon up is because of his ability to, to, uh, hurt other teams as a passer as well as a scorer. Yeah. And I, that Robinson was more naturally on that level. Yeah, I agree with that. So we've certainly talked around it enough in terms of their styles and their strengths and things like that. But let's play the time machine game, um, even, even though even though I'm always <laughs> uncomfortable playing it. But let's take it at the most superficial value level here that we try to and just say, think about how the strengths that they had in their time translate to today. We've been on the two Southpaws with Robinson and Russell. I want to throw it to you. Who do you think is going to be a better defender between the two of them? Wow. So I feel that defensively, Russell had better tools that, you know, Robinson may be an inch, maybe two taller, um, and, and, and therefore maybe a little longer. But they're, um, as fast as Robinson was, and he was really fast for a big man, I feel that Russell probably was faster and quicker horizontally. And in today's NBA, that's key. I think that Robinson, if he was here today, would be by far the best defensive player in the NBA, um, almost merging the strengths of Draymond Green at his best and Rudy Gobert at his best. But I think that Russell would be a little better because he would be able to to be a little more um, – flexible uh, that, that he wouldn't have any issue I don't believe coming all the way out beyond the three-point line if necessary and I think you know for what it's worth that he had a little better defensive instincts all, all together so I think in today's game Russell would still be the best defender I thought we were going to disagree on this but I think we're aligned because to me Robinson was not only the weakest of these three mega defenders within his own era but I think translating to today the thing that really stands out to me is the foot speed, lateral quickness. There are moments mm -hmm. in the mid-90s where you can see him being put in pick and roll or high uh, high pick and roll is not the right term because now they run it 35 feet away. But a <laughs> right. lot, well, they had a lot of side pick and roll back then. And as athletic as he was, as incredible as he was getting off the ground with his first step, he was very stiff. You know, some, yeah. of, the, some of the things we talked about on offense are around that stiffness he didn't have these fluid agile counter moves and agility and things like that and so on defense that would sometimes come out where that immediate left to right foot speed containing a perimeter guy on a switch or in pick and roll one of the games I was watching last week in prep for this like he just gets dusted off of off of pick and roll because of that lack of foot speed whereas I think Russell on the other hand does better he has the build he has the agility uh, in the games where he switches out onto smaller guys just seems to be more comfortable with that he thought about pick and roll it wasn't as common back then but he thought about how to play the angles of the pick and roll much the way Kevin Garnett you know mastered in the in the modern game recently and I just think that there's a clear defensive gap in their own time that I 
think probably still carries over to today. Olajuwon's the trickier one for me. Yeah, Akeem is interesting. I've I've told anecdotes and things I've written before, but watching Akeem live action, he never. So David Robinson, as fast as as great of an athlete as he was, he always moved and seemed like a really athletic tall man. Right. You know, whereas Elijahwan to me moved like a really tall short man, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, and, and they say that he used to play soccer and, and that that was his background. And, and that, that seemed to be how he moved. Like he, he was proportioned different. Elijahwan, I mean, I'm sorry, Robinson was really tall with really long arms. He muscled up and, you know, got cut up, but you know, he was still, his dimensions were a lot more vertical. Whereas Elijahwan, it, it was almost surprising to me that he's listed as only an inch shorter than than Robinson because mm-hmm. he just his body, everything just seemed like from a distance he should be six, six and not seven feet. Um, so. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting to say because he does have more quickness and and maybe more ability to to move out to the perimeter compared to Robinson. Russell was a world class sprinter you know, a world-class leaper, which is much more quick, quick twitch. And he just had quickness at that position that at that time was unprecedented. And I think Elijah Wan is, you know, right up at the top of the curve with him. But just looking at, you know, what I think to probably be a bit of a, a, a raw physical advantage and the fact that I really just feel like Russell was, you, you used the term earlier, a basketball genius. Um, the way that he approached the game, all around, not just on defense, I kind of feel like he would probably translate to being the best defensive player during this era, um, even over Elijah Wan. Um, but it sounds as though uh, you, you might disagree, so let, let me pass the mic back to you. No, I agree with that. I think that's my order on defense. I think today Russell would be the best defensive player in the league. I don't think he can have the same impact now, the way the game is stretched out, that he did back then. But I do think you're talking about someone we would consider. I mean, Giannis is an interesting connection just in their physical build. You know, whatever mm-hmm. Giannis's real height is, 6'10", they're, they're very similar in build. Russell was athletic and muscular and strong. He had that balance between strength and quickness. Probably in these peak years we're talking about, based on reports, 235 to 245 pounds, um, right? right. And so just that balance of strength, agility, speed, quick twitch, the mental component, I do think he would be, you know, half a click up or whatever from the Giannis Gobert kind of best defensive impact we see today in numbers that try to capture that. I think I would go Akeem next. The thing about Akeem, I don't think his pick and roll or sort of stretched out vertical defense per se I shouldn't use the word vertical because I'm about to make a point about shot blocking Um, (laughs) his defense 30 feet from the hoop or something on switches I don't think that would necessarily shine I'm not certain or sold on that but man his hands and his and his instincts to the ball that combination we've never seen there's a reason why he has all those stocks steals and blocks the quickness he showed on defending post entries. <laughs> good mm-hmm. good luck trying to feed the post with Hakeem on your back because he, he would just slip around you and grab it. If you got it, he would stick an arm in and poke it out. And then his ability to target the ball, I think that would all translate, but I don't think it would be at the level of Russell. 
and I think it would be maybe comparable to Robinson, maybe a little head. That's how I lay him out defensively. I think offensively is the harder one, right? Yeah. How do these guys look today knowing, I mean, is Akeem a good enough post player that it's almost like Carl Anthony Towns without the three-point shot? Wait, is Akeem a good enough shooter? Because he was a really good mid-range shooter. Is he a good enough shooter exactly. that he has a three-point shot? I, hold on, I need to catch my breath. Take us away. <laughs> what do you think yeah, about this? No, it's, I mean, that in... You know what? We've talked about the difficulties with trying to time machine Russell into an era that he didn't play, even though it was only, you know, 25 years ago that, that Robinson and, and, and Elijah Wan were at their peak. The three point line and the way that the game now is is maximized towards it, you, you have to kind of figure that they would have played the game differently today. Um, and if you were a reasonable mid-range jump shooter, which both Elijah Wan and, and Robinson were for centers, um, you you have to feel like maybe they would have spent some time and and developed at least a Giannis level three-point shot um, with the ability to scale up because they're much better free throw shooters than, than Giannis. So could they have been a, a, a 35% three-point shooter on relatively low volume? I would think that they could have developed that, but obviously they didn't show that in their actual playing careers. Um, and, and as for how their offense would work, we've talked a lot about how Akeem was the, 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 the post initiator, whereas Robinson was more off the ball. And I feel like in today's game, Robinson's style in general is probably more effective and impactful on offense than Elijah Wan's style. But, you know, coming back to your question, was Elijah Wan good enough at what he did that he could be a style outlier and still, you know, be one of the the best players in the league? Possibly, because you figure all of these three-point shooters that the game, you know, all of the emphasis on the three-point shooters, even if Elijah Wan's not the one doing it, they have to be creating space on a level of the best that he saw when he was with the Rockets. Um, and maybe it was difficult with the Rockets because others weren't playing that way. So maybe defenses didn't know how to adjust as, as well as they may be able to now. But um, it, it seems like he would be pretty darn effective with his back to the basket and he can only be single teamed, you know, especially once his, his passing game caught up. OK, let's wrap up with some brass tacks. All right. At their best. Yes. Bill Russell, David Robinson, Hakeem, early Twin Towers learns how to pass, two championships, line them up, Andre. Right. How do you rank them at their best? I rank them at their best, Russell, Elijah Wan, Robinson. <laughs> Man. But it's very difficult it's tough. for all the caveats and reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. I think I'm going to go today. Hold on. Let me see which way the wind is blowing. <laughs> okay. I think based on the weather here in Los Angeles. I'm comfortable with Akeem relative to his period as having the best peak. Russell's more variable, so it feels like maybe right, maybe Russell could take that. But I'm I'm more comfortable saying it's Akeem. Um almost ironically maybe based on that last sentence, I'm then comfortable saying Russell. I don't think I can get low enough on Russell to really say for certain that Robinson would be second. So I go Akeem, I'm comfortable with that, Russell next, and then I think Robinson has the weakest peak of these three. I do want to get to one thing that I completely forgot. It spaced out of my mind, and now I'm remembering. The 1995 series, famously between Hakeem and Russell. Yes. 
and Robinson. Why do I keep man? It's the R <laughs> and their southpaws and the athleticism. Um, Hakeem and Robinson in that '95 series. There is something that I think is a bit unfair about it from a narrative standpoint when you line up Hakeem and Robinson, and that is this: Hakeem was incredible in that series. The thing he was incredible at difficult shot making and shot blocking at the rim those are like the two highlight machines of basketball and, yeah. Ro- and Robinson played perfectly fine in that series his numbers were fine his over when you watched the film it wasn't like he was falling apart but Robinson never has been never was never will be in the same you know atmosphere as Hakeem Olajuwon's post bag just his entire tool of tricks and so it's never fair to me to say, A, we're only going to look at six games and make it a referendum. But B, you're focusing on the thing that Akeem is the best at, yeah. that is getting all the attention. Robinson is one of those 10-step players where mm-hmm. the style of his game, even his defense, just all of the things about him are kind of subtle and fast and you don't really necessarily notice them. And that's not his strength. And so I've never felt that, based on everything we've said today included, that that was necessarily a fair thing because we have to be careful to just focus on a guy's strength when that thing is clicking and that thing is the sexiest thing and then compare that same sexy strength to the other guy we're talking about when that's not his strength. I agree 100%. And that what you just laid out was why I thought that when we went back through time in those projects that I thought that Robinson was going to look better because, you know, that that 95 series can really be distilled in most people's memories as Akeem in the office, you know, pump faking left, right, spin, step under, getting this wide open fadeaway with Robinson a step behind. And that's that's kind of the way that it felt like everything was. And it really wasn't. But what was surprising was then when we continued to look on, there did appear to be a definite um, absence in in, in Robinson's skill set that, that that showed up in the postseason as was um, that well, it wasn't there for Elijah Wan. They they both bit on up fakes. They both sort of had that gap in their defensive game. They were vulnerable to leaving their feet really quickly and trying to block shots. The, the only difference was. David Robinson had to guard Akeem Olajuwon. Akeem Olajuwon didn't have to guard Akeem Olajuwon. So it's like yeah. you put that under a microscope and it can really warp our perceptions. Um, anything else you want to say on these three legends before we wrap it up? Yeah, one last thing, and it's just based on uh, your conclusion, the way you phrased it. Because I was – my hesitance um, with Russell versus the other two is based on – how things would change potentially in other eras. You know, is it fair to assume that his basketball intelligence and growing up in a time period would have allowed him to evolve his game um, in, in, in such a way to stay maximized? That's the only reason I hesitated. But what you said was that you felt that Elijah Wan was better enough in era compared to his peers that you would rank him over Russell. And if we're talking in era, I don't think it's close. I think Russell was dominant in his era in a way that I don't know if even Jordan replicated. So mm. I, I find I found that to be a really interesting walk off statement from you. Yeah, I'm I'm just not comfortable. There's too many uncertainties around that time. And I think that's a less likely 
you know, if I graphed my odds on what I thought was most likely, I think that is a possible but less likely outcome for me based on the combination of data we have, the little film, and of course, all of the stories, books, and newspaper articles we've been able to read over the years. Interesting. I would say the opposite. I would say that the signal of Russell's strength and impact and how it translated to the court was so robust and so repeatable over such a long period of time that I would be more comfortable saying that that would be more likely to be replicated multiple times in in, in varying circumstances. Whereas with Elijah Wan, he was individually brilliant at what he could do for his entire career. Um, You know, the things that you pointed out made him look so much better than Robinson in that series. He always had that. So he was always able to um, generate those highlight uh, those scoring, those huge stock numbers that stick with people. But he only had that short window between 93 and 96 where he was able to kind of put that all together and translate it into that Megatron impact. And even then it was Megatron impact in the postseason only, which is another shorter time sample. And I have more questions about how he would scale, how he would fit in other situations. And honestly, how that would have translated had Jordan not retired or had a team like the Bulls, you know, not even necessarily the Bulls, but a dominant team been available there for Elijah Wan's Rockets to face in their prime. I think his success was the much less likely story versus what we saw out of Russell. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, just to be clear, we are comparing peaks here, not careers. And yeah. I do think there's... The, the issue is there's still enough noise in the signal with Russell that it's hard to pinpoint. So it's very clear to me that he's having MVP all-time kind of impact, but the band of where that falls combined with the other things that we can look at, box score data, uh, any other kind of like statistical things we can sort of cull from the sea of information that exists, the the stories, just whatever, I that's that's sort of the basis for where I'm going. But I think what you laid out is perfectly reasonable and in line. And I think it's a, it's actually an interesting thing trying to pinpoint peak success when you go back and you look at outliers like this and someone from the early days, you can almost do the same thing in baseball with Babe Ruth or in football with Otto Graham or something like that, where it's like, just how high was the peak that they achieved? Yeah, but don't you also, I mean, I understand we're focusing on the peak, but if this were an experiment in real life, right, and we were looking only at a certain window of the experiment, but if we stretched outside of that window, we had situations that supported what we saw during that peak window, to me, that seems to serve to lower the noise a bit. You know, like if Russell would have had a four year span at his peak where he was just absurd and they won four rings and he was the defense was off the scale. But then in the rest of his career, there was more gray area. I think you, I think that that, that you would have a, a stronger argument. But for him to have that four year peak and then in the surrounding in both directions, as you pointed out, as the league was changing, that, that the signal stayed just as robust. It never it never deviated For for me, I think. That's where using information outside of the peak helps even 
when, when with determining the level of the peak itself. Oh, I think absolutely. Just to be clear, we want to use that surrounding information. The, those aren't independent events; they're related, right? Right. Um, but you know, I'll let I'll I'll let you have that last word there because I think that was a very compelling point you made, um, Andre. Thanks as always. This was a blast, and uh, tell everybody what you have going on, latest work they can check out, what whatever you're doing at ESPN these days. Um, now's mm-hmm. the time. Twitter, if you want people yelling at you about your opinions. <laughs> Definitely. So first, follow me on professor, on Twitter at Professor Driz. That's the word Professor D-R-Z. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult writing for ESPN at a time when there's no new live basketball. So I've had to be creative. And I've actually got had a little more latitude to talk about things like what we talked about on here. So I've got uh, a few articles out there, one comparing Giannis to David Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, I've got one uh, kind of comparing Jordan to the the rest of the players of the previous of the last 40 years. I've got one comparing Russell to Rodman and, and Wallace and, and these defensive anchors. So I'm doing a lot of comparing current players to historical players. And, and that's running on ESPN's fantasy page. And then, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm keeping busy. I'm, I'm showing up on a few radio shows and and whatever I'm into, uh, uh, it'll find its way to my Twitter. Once again, a huge thanks to Andre for taking the time to go deep with us. If you want to support this podcast, All Thinking Basketball Endeavors, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. You can get access to the historical database over there. There's some insider articles, extra videos, things like that. We have a discussion community, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. It's the best way to support this podcast right now, along with leaving a review and a rating wherever you listen to podcast, Apple podcast store or whatever. I don't know how that stuff works, but it helps us tremendously in the algorithm as we continue to grow. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. And, of course, I hope that wherever you are out there, especially now, you are all having a great day.